This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about climate change, how it's changing the way people live, and more importantly for this discussion, where they live. This is a conversation about migration. Now, I always learn a lot from the talks that we share on this podcast, but every once in a while, a guest says something that completely changes the frame for me, that shifts the way I view the world, even a little bit. That happened in this conversation with two very smart journalists. Sonia Shah is an award-winning science journalist and author. Her latest book is The Next Great Migration, The Beauty and Terror of Life on the Move. Abram Lusgarten reports on climate change for ProPublica. He's also the author of a three-part investigation for the New York Times Magazine on global human migration and climate change, and he's currently writing a book on the topic. So, this big aha moment comes early in this conversation with Crosscut Science and Environment Editor Ted Alvarez, which was recorded at this year's Crosscut Festival in May. Shaw walks through her own evolution of really understanding migration and comes to the conclusion that migration is maybe not so much a problem as it is a solution. Like Shaw, before her awakening, I've always thought about migration as a kind of negative thing, a migrant crisis. We always see those two words together in news stories. But humans are a migratory species. We've moved for food, for opportunity, for safety from persecution, and now, more and more, humans are moving as a way to escape the more brutal impacts of climate change. Now, this isn't to deny the devastating effects of climate change. Neither of our guests are saying anything like that. But this conversation is steeped in a kind of realism, an idea that as we enter into an era of undeniable environmental transformation, we perhaps need to embrace this kind of migration. Now, maybe embracing climate migration is unrealistic in the current political environment, but it's definitely worth thinking about, because whether we embrace it or deny it, it's coming. This conversation and all other conversations on the science and environment track at the 2021 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by John S. Adams, CFP, and UBS, which would like to share the following message. The Arbor Group at UBS has a straightforward mission, to help you make the world a better place. Through personal financial planning and sustainable investment management, the Arbor Group works with each of their clients to pursue that client's specific goals. Learn more by visiting UBS.com slash team slash the Arbor Group. And one note on this recording, due to some technical difficulties during the event, Sonia Shah disappears for a portion of this conversation, but she does make the most of her time here, really hoping we can have her on again sometime in the future. I hope you enjoy the talk. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Abram, Sonia, thanks for being here. Nice to be here. So it's interesting to me that when we talk about human migration, especially in the context of climate change, it's this global phenomena that that will drive changes that I think we can scarcely imagine and that you guys are doing the great work of, of taking us through that. 
But I think the origin stories for both of you about why you are interested in this are intensely personal. So I was wondering if you could take us through that a little bit. And I'll, I'll start with you, Sonia. Uh, sure. Um, I mean, for me, uh, you know, I'm the child of immigrants. Uh, my parents came over from India in the 1960s. And I think I very much internalized the idea of migration as anomalous. I always felt that my own presence on in North America was somehow sort of out of place, um, that I, you know, couldn't really fit in exactly in North America, but also couldn't really fit in when I went back to India to visit relatives. So there was a sense of this long distance act of migration that my parents uh, committed that, you know, it just, it, it really kind of put me out of place somehow. Um, and I think that contributed to really my whole career arc as a journalist, which has been looking at the disruptive effects of people, animals, microbes sort of moving in new ways. You know, I've, I've written a lot about infectious disease outbreaks, which is all about that, um, pandemics, which is all about that too. Um, so, you know, I started to look at migration as migration around 2015 um, when the so-called migrant crisis was happening in the Mediterranean and lots of Syrian and Afghans and, and Africans were trying to make their way into Western Europe and getting stuck in the Mediterranean Sea and, and in Southern Europe. And, uh, you know, I went there thinking that this could be, a, just, this would be a disruptive sort of, you know, ca catastrophic thing, especially for public health, which was, you know, what I had been reporting on for, for years before that. Um, and what I found was really just the opposite, that the people who were moving into these new places were actually often healthier than the host populations they they joined, which is a, a well-documented phenomenon called the healthy migrant effect. And it, it actually makes sense when you think about it for even a second, because migration itself requires resilience um, and good health. Like, it's just really hard to do otherwise. So, um, you know, it, it, it made me start thinking, well, why did I immediately kind of reflexively consider migration as a kind of a problem, you know, a kind of a crisis. And I, I realized that that was a very kind of conventional understanding of migration. You know, we talk about uh, when we see people moving around, we kind of immediately use the term migrant crisis, right? Like we don't really first stop and think, well, is it life-saving for those people? Is there absorptive capacity where they're going? Does it contribute to the resilience of the societies they leave behind? Um, we don't really look at that whole picture. We just kind of immediately sense, oh, something's out of place. This is a disruptive thing. Migration is happening, and it's somehow kind of a crisis or a catastrophe in some way that we can't fully articulate, but we kind of, you know, reflexively understand as as sort of negative. Um, so I wanted to start kind of investigating where that idea comes from and how that will play a role you know, as we enter this era of, of massive climate change, where we know that our wild species, they need to move, you know, we, we know that they need to move into new places in order to survive the changing climate. And a lot of them are already doing that. 80% of wild species um, that have been studied from all different taxa um, are moving into new places, usually moving north and, and into the heights in sync with the changing climate. Um, and I think we can see some uh, signals of that happening among people too. People are moving in new ways and in, in new places and new in new ways and into new places. Um, and I think what I wanted to try to look at in in my book was whether this is something that is 
a crisis that we need to prevent somehow? Or could this be part of the solution to the crises that we're facing with climate change? And so, Brum, I was really struck by your essay, um, you know, when the wildfires got so bad in, in California or have been for several years now, it sort of brought everything home that you've been researching and reporting on to roost. I'm curious, did you, did you have a, a personal motivation when you, when you began, when you began um, this project or, or did, or was that when it all kind of like came back down on you? Yeah. I mean, the personal uh, motivation and the personal connection really came through the reporting um, of the project. Uh, you know, it began with the, you know, with just this curiosity about many of the issues that, that Sonia is talking about and what would environments effects be on, you know, where people choose to live, how would people begin to respond to climate change? And we often talk about climate change in terms of changing environmental conditions or the science of it or the temperature of it or the amount of precipitation, but a lot less about, you know, how, um, how we live with it or how we're going to live with it. So it started at, you know, out of a, uh, a curiosity with that um, and, a, and a really kind of analytical approach, this idea that we could maybe quantify it, uh, you know, and I tried to do that through some modeling, but even behind the modeling, you know, there's this, this sort of reporting curiosity of, could we break down like the human decision-making um, uh, you know, could we, could we try to figure out how, you know, how does environment actually inform um, when does an individual person decide to, you know, to go, to move, to pick up and change their lives. And so that's where this sort of personal part uh, came in. You know, it, I, it was, it was a several part project for me. And the first was really globally focused. Um, but in the midst of that, of course, I, you know, I live in the San Francisco Bay area and, uh, and we've been dealing with wildfires and sometimes that's been an immediate threat. Uh, and sometimes it's been a more distant threat where we just sort of suffer from, you know, bad air quality and smoke. Um, but it happened over two seasons over the course of, of my reporting. And so the first, you know, was sort of this light bulb had gone off and I was about six months into reporting and I'm like, oh, you know, my discomfort is a form, uh, unequal to many other people's experience around the world, but, um, but is a form of environment influencing my thinking about where I live. And, you know, in my own context of, you know, of privilege and ability and living in the United States and all of that, it was still sort of, you know, provoking the same questioning that was exactly what I was asking villagers about in Guatemala, which is like, you know, what's your threshold? What, how do you experience the environment around you? When would you decide to make a change or how much can you live with? And do you like it? Do you not, not like it? Um, you know, and that became, uh, for us in California, for me, it just became a, you know, an ever more, um, sort of pressing question as my project was delayed, uh, through COVID and I found myself in January of 2020 now publishing the second uh, or September, I think, you know, publishing the second part of my series, which was focused on American migration. And I was right in the thick of it, just just kind of living that that question at that point. Um, so, yeah, it became very personal and in, in a way that helped me understand the reporting better, but not in a way that that drove that reporting uh, or was the reason why I, I chose this project. Yeah. Another thing that I think you both do really well is you take in, in both your series and the book is you take all of this data and all, all of the science and sort of trace all of how, how it's moving across landscapes and countries and beyond borders. But then to really make those stories land, you have very personal stories, these very personal narratives uh, in encounters and interactions with, with real people uh, on the ground who are experiencing this migration right now. I'm wondering if one particular story for those who are maybe less familiar with the the book and the series leaps to mind where 
you met somebody on the ground who maybe challenged or, or changed your perception of, of migration? And I'll, I'll start with you, Sonia. I mean, almost everyone I met sort of, uh, you know, the stories, the stories that you hear are so complex and so sort of uh, peculiar in particular that, you know, they're, they're all really very powerful and, and um, give you a lot of insights, just each one in different ways. But, um, but I remember going to, when I was in Greece, speaking to the people who were detained there, Syrians and Afghans mostly, and I was just really struck by how many of them were, you know, teachers and journalists and lawyers. And, you know, these were like professional class people who had picked up and left and they were living in tents in, in parking lots for months and years at a time. Um, th that struck me because it was kind of different than the stereotype of the, the dusty refugee in the camp, you know, <laughs> which mm -hmm. I think, you know, is, is sort of we have this the depiction is more commonly of somebody who's kind of really down and out and desperate. And of course, these are people who have a lot of resources actually, um, who are able to make these incredible journeys. Um, but I remember talking to a Haitian man in, um, who had made it to Canada and his journey had started in Haiti. Then he went to Brazil. Then he went to Venezuela. And then he went mostly on foot through, I think it was nine countries to get up to Panama. And when you get to Panama, the road kind of ends through the Darien Gap, which is this, you know, very thick jungle in, in the, uh, at the end of Panama. He walked through that. I think it took about a week. Um, and he went with maybe a, a dozen people of whom only a few survived. Um, mm -hmm. And then he got to the other side and, and then made it all the way to the U.S.-Mexico border somehow got into the United States and then the Trump administration changed their rules about um, who from Haiti could actually come into the United States and, and be granted different kinds of protection. So he went up to Canada and he, you know, he was a refugee from the United States as well and made it up to Canada. And then he was, he was kind of waiting for his status um, in Montreal. And, uh, you know, and, and he was living in this chilly flat wearing his flip flops and t-shirt <laughs> freezing cold wow. in in Montreal and he was with a whole bunch of other Haitian guys who had made this, a similar journey you know um, I mean it just amazing amounts of resilience and innovation to make it through all that and then you know I, for me as an American to hear that these people you know who had made it to the United States which was I mean, I grew up with that idea of, you know, uh, bring us your, your poor, your, your tired, your huddle masses and all that. Um, and then had to flee the United States to, to find refuge somewhere else. You know, that, that, that really has stuck with me. How about you, Abram? Yeah, you know, um, just thinking through my encounters as, uh, you know, as uh, Sonia was speaking and, you know, I think the strongest impressions are the same ones that I, that I wrote about, you know, sort of getting at the, the, my analytical quest, you know, I went down to Central America reporting and, and I think I had this, you know, idea that I'd be, uh, you know, sort of tapping into people's decision making process and together, you know, we'd sort of sit down and work out a list of pros and cons to staying put or migrating to the United States or migrating somewhere else, you know, and, um, and I didn't know what would be in those columns, but that's what I was kind of there to there to find out. Um, and, you know, my takeaway and what really drove the stories was realizing that, um, you know, by the time, at least for the, the people that I was, you know, working with, um, 
you know, by the time they got to the point of really considering migration uh, out of, you know, their, their sort of rural and sustainable, you know, uh, uh, sustenance farming, you know, kind of existence, um, there were no columns of pros and cons. There was just sheer necessity. Uh, they're really, you know, moving migration um, for many of these people was an absolute last resort. And I think that's what you see, you know, in the research. And it's true that, you know, migration has driven exchange of cultures, you know, on our planet forever. But it's also, um, you know, true that people have an amazing uh, uh, gravitation towards their sense of home, uh, you know, and community. And, uh, you know, and so, so when it comes to, you know, the kind of disruptive environmental conditions I was looking at and what was driving the, the people in the communities, it was um, they had gotten to a point where they had really pulled out all the stops, borrowed all the money, tried all of the local jobs, tried migrating to the cities and then come back home and failed and all of that and then couldn't eat um, and just, you know, really suffering like acute malnutrition and um, and uh, hunger and were you know, this region, this part of Highlands, Guatemala was, uh, you know, at the time really on the edge of famine and um and that by the time uh you know father and son in a household that i spent time with you know actually uh uh you know hired a coyote a guide to bring them to the united states who decided to make that journey uh it was a painful one and not one that anybody wanted to make and it was just uh, you know driven from sheer desperation and that was really you know the eye-opening um discovery for me of this entire body of reporting yeah that, that's really interesting because it, it contrasts with something else that you brought up um, in, in your reporting that was fascinating, um, which is that as opposed to many parts of the world, as you were describing, Americans tend to move perhaps against our best interests toward heat, coastlines, things like that. Why, why is that? And, and do you see that changing as these sort of climate emergencies become more frequent and more, more intense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, so so the first answer to get out of the way is I think, you know, culturally, Americans kind of think that we're we think of ourselves as a bit impervious to circumstances and we can overpower, you know, nature, we can out engineer it or we're just kind of invincible. Um, but that's kind of a, you know, a subjective judgment. Um, but there's there's a bunch of, you know, structural parts of our system that have encouraged the U.S. population to, to move into places that happen to be the highest risk. And, uh, you know, so insurance, the way insurance is, is structured and offered is, is one of those. And the way that the United States in various ways subsidizes um, both housing and also uh, disaster relief are, are other ways that um, have pushed population growth in places like uh, Florida, where, you know, there is state subsidization of, of insurance so that you can, even though we know there's increasing number of hurricanes and we've seen many many billions of dollars in damages, uh, you can still, you know, buy insurance on, on the coastline in Florida uh, pretty affordably. And that's because mm -hmm. the state, you know, subsidizes and has for, you know, more than a decade subsidized that. And that's, a, that's one of many forms of, of pulling populations into, you know, what are, at least from an environmental standpoint or a climate change standpoint, kind of the wrong places. I mean, look at the, the population of the Southwest or the growth of, growth of Phoenix, Arizona, or the over-reliance on the Colorado River, which is built out with, you know, federal infrastructure and federal subsidies. Um, these are all things that have pulled us kind of into, you know, relatively high stress environmental environments. Um, so, you know, a couple of things are changing now. The, the apparent uh, impact of, of the climate is becoming very obvious. And we've had a couple devastating four or five years in a row across the country, whether it's wildfires or hurricanes or floods in Houston or deep freezes in, in Texas, um, you know, that are 
awakening, uh, I think, people across the spectrum politically, you know, to, to the real change that is afoot. And at the same time, and partially in response to that, um, the financial mechanisms are changing as well. So those subsidies are disappearing, um, whether it's states, you know, rejiggering their policies to be, a, you know, a little bit more sustainable or banks uh, or finance systems and credit rating agencies starting to evaluate climate risk in a different way. Um, so the incentives that have pulled Americans in the wrong direction are, are disappearing. Uh, while their vision of the risk that they face uh, is becoming, you know, more explicit every day, uh, and I do think, you know, there's some—I don't know where that tipping point is—but there's a, there is a point where, uh, you know, that will push uh, those who don't want to live in that high-risk environment to, you know, to move to a place that they think is lower risk. Kind of connected to that, um, some countries are seizing on the opportunity of migration, or, or how they can kind of rethink their infrastructure faster than others. Like you see Russia, for instance, embracing this potential of becoming the world's breadbasket, you know, as, as, um, as the climate shifts. Are we, are we seeing any similar, uh, similar things happening here in the United States or opportunities for that? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I have not seen that uh, as explicitly as you think, uh, you might think that, um, you know, that we would, and maybe, maybe it's to come, but I think, you know, so just described all the ways in which we seem to be coming to terms with climate change, but we're still so far behind and have been so slow, you know, to, mm -hmm. to come to terms with that, that, um, you know, I think in the commercial sector, there is, there is a push to get ahead of the curve in terms of seeing the opportunities of climate change. And there's, you know, this kind of climate intelligence arms race around the science to see, you know, who can understand what's coming best and model it best. And if they can deploy that, you know, commercially for profit uh, before somebody else does. Um, but in terms of larger, like, you know, societal, uh, you know, or policy changes, the way you described, you know, what I wrote about Russia, uh, you know, and that's this idea that, you know, Russia is trying to build out its agriculture industry because its lands are changing and it can grow more food. And, um, you know, that there is a long-term strategy to, to perhaps, you know, strengthen themselves. I haven't come across that, uh, that same kind of dynamic in a big way in the United mm -hmm. States. You see, um, elements of communities planning for it, which is interesting, you know, like the state of state of Vermont has a sustainability plan that anticipates really significant population growth there because they think a lot of people will move north and want that kind of environment or will need it. Uh, you know, and I think that's probably, you know, true. And you see those conversations starting in other places around, you know, the Great Lakes region or whether it's Wisconsin or Minnesota, um, you know, Rochester, New York. Um, but, uh, that's to say they're starting to think about what the change will bring and, and perhaps how they need to adapt to it. Um, but I, I haven't really come across a great example of anybody trying to get ahead of that and uh, figure out how to, how to especially thrive in that environment yet. Yeah. Probably coming soon. Yeah, hopefully. This is a, this is a question, you know, that I, I think both of you would have a lot of insight into, but I mean, even today there was reporting on um, the, the, how birth rates in the U.S. are falling. We're just having, and all the reasons why we are on this trajectory to have, um, you know, a much, we're not having as much population growth as we have in the past. And so is it possible for this migration? I think other writers like Matthew Iglesias maybe has made an argument for like 1 billion Americans and how we might embrace that kind of migration. Is that something that you see as a, as a potential? Maybe we embrace some of this, influx of population that that can then you know offset other things like to paying for the social safety net say that type that type of thing 
Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not sure I see that happening anytime soon, obviously. I mean, we face a real kind of political and cultural crossroads and backlash, you know, at the moment that makes that difficult. Long term, maybe. I'm not, I haven't tracked the one billion, uh, you know, uh, conversation, but um, what I have seen uh, and and wrote about in part, you know, is economic analyses that suggest that northern countries, uh, you know, will uh, see greater economic growth as the climate changes. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so long as they have the manpower to, you know, to or the person power, you know, to, to support that that growth. And um, and it so happens that a lot of northern countries, the United States included, but even more so, you know, Canada or uh, Scandinavian countries or Russia um, are in a pretty steep you know, demographic decline. Um, they're aging, you know, faster than, um, you know, than, than uh, new nationals are being born. Um, you know, and the U.S. has started to head, started to head in that direction, uh, you know, as well. So it suggests, but no one's really sure about this yet, you know, that um, if, if you're going to really seize that economic growth that might be available uh, through, you know, through the changing climate, that you'll need a lot more people to do it. And, um uh, I'll come back to the U.S. in a second, but you know, Canada, well, Russia uh, has great, you know, opportunity to expand this way uh, should they choose to to take in migrants. Migrants choose to go there. Canada is a destination for migrants uh, and has recognized its need for for a larger population and has this, um, you know, informal program pushing to grow that population from about 37, 38 million to 100 million, um, you know, Canadians over the next century um, called the Century Initiative and. Um, so there is that explicit recognition, uh, but the United States, I just think it's um, we're really having a difficult time culturally wrapping our heads around, uh, you know, mixing as a society and bringing uh, more people across the border and having sympathies for those impacted by by climate change, as well as all the other things that that, uh, you know, that force uh, uh, migration and lead to it, um, and, you know, and. I think there's plenty of evidence that our economy would benefit from some amount. I don't know what the number is, you know, some amount of, uh, you know, of added of, of grow, you know, grown workforce. But um, uh, I just don't see us quite as ready to embrace that as uh, other other parts of the world are at the moment. Uh, do you think like the pandemic has changed our thinking, you know, and, and maybe maybe prepared us to to make some of these changes culturally a little bit? I mean, obviously, we're seeing all kinds of cultural grinding there. And I think at the beginning, there was a lot of noise about everyone is the cities are going to hollow out and people will with remote work will move, you know, to to smaller and more rural areas. And maybe that hasn't quite happened with home prices and the like. So but but yeah, I'm just curious if you think the pandemic has altered our, our thinking. Uh- yeah, I've come kind of full circle personally on trying to wrap my head around how the pandemic has changed things, and it and it's sort of like it's changed everything and it's changed nothing at the same time. Um, mm. You know, it's um, you, you mentioned the you know the exodus from cities, uh, you know, which is a short term phenomenon. A lot of the researchers that I talk to think that in the long run that um, that will reverse um, mm-hmm. you know, for two reasons. One, you know that. Uh, uh, we've been urbanizing as a society for a really long time and the bigger, broader trend and momentum is in that direction. Um, but also that as we, you know, in, with respect to climate change in particular, in the, the expenses uh, required and the investment and the infrastructure and the policy and the sort of the robust governance that's going to be needed to adapt to a lot of the change that's coming is going to be something that 
cities can afford to do more than than rural areas. And uh, the more they do, the, the more that they will attract people and people will need to live in a place that has, you know, those systems to support them. And so there's sort of, you know, a vision for a long term urbanization, uh, you know, as one of the sort of movement phenomenons, um, you know, and then COVID, you know, of course, it's it's taught us that the most unforeseeable and unthinkable uh, can be right around the corner and, um, you know, and it can change moment by moment, uh, what you learn on Tuesday versus Friday versus Sunday, you know, and it's sort of, you know, so everything's up in the air on one hand, um, you know, it's shown us how interconnected the world is because I think that's how these coronaviruses are, you know, got to the United States in the first place. And we just have a larger population that's traveling more, uh, whether it's, you know, from the you know, jungles of South Asia to the cities of China or from the cities of China to Europe and the United States and so forth. Um, but it's also hardened our sense of, uh, you know, our sort of nationalistic impulses, I think, which is another, you know, risk of, of, um, uh, you know, of, of migration in general, but, uh, you know, the COVID years taught us to close borders and, uh, be self-protective. And those are things that, um, you know, are, uh, maybe coincidentally, but, uh, which also happened in response to large scale migration and what you see in response to the pressures on the U S border right now. And so I don't know, you know, if the, if the lesson that we see from COVID, you know, five years from now or, or longer, you know, is, um, that we're all connected and we need to, uh, you know, allow greater cross-border movement or that, uh, we're also connected. We need to disconnect more and protect ourselves and, and kind of shut things down. Mm. I'm, I'm also curious, like outside of, you know, these big govern, you know, sort of whatever powers of uh, or whatever levers government has to pull to kind of counteract these these changes and these mass migrations. Um, I'm wondering if you see any grassroots activities on the ground, like communities that are coming together and finding ways to to mitigate or migrate or adjust, you know, outside of governmental support. Yeah, um, to a limited degree, you know, and what I'm thinking as you ask that question is, you know, a, a lot of the political movement that's happening, you know, in the South, uh, in the southeastern United States, and especially around, you know, uh, push for climate equity, uh, to kind of reverse some of the, you know, some of the structural biases, you know, environmental justice has been, uh, you know, an enormous concern in terms of pollution, uh, uh, you know, and other environmental factors in terms of disproportionately affecting, you know, black and brown people around the country and particularly in the South. And, um, and climate will be, you know, an extension of, of that, uh, for, for a lot of reasons, um, ranging from, you know, the availability of insurance or affordability of insurance to the way cities zone their neighborhoods. Um, so, you know, there is a bit of a grassroots movement, uh, you know, that I see, uh, across the South to, uh, you know, think up a, a sort of a version of, of the Green New Deal. I mean, what kind of growth uh, is sustainable? What kind of adaptation to, you know, to climate change or rising sea levels on the, on the Louisiana coast, for example, um, you know, does enhance adaptation, but but protects against rapid gentrification and, uh, and things like that. So, uh, you know, I'm seeing that in some of those communities. Uh, and then, you know, on the flip side, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a little bit from places like Rochester, New York, uh, where the city has, you know, taken uh, a large number of Puerto Rican migrants. Um, uh, people have moved from Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. Um, you know, that there is, uh, that they're maybe a little bit ahead in that process of other, you know, U.S. cities in terms of thinking about how to, you know, provide that infrastructure and embrace that, uh, you know, that growth and the, the economic opportunity that comes with that. Um, you know, so there's a, those are two places where I think there, you know, there is some forward movement and some, um, you know, uh, creative energy being put towards, uh, you know, this problem or challenge. 
Now that we, we have you back, Sonia, I want to return. We're, we're basically talking about um, with all of the risks and, and, you know, the doom and gloom that comes with migration. One one thing that I think your book pursues in a, in a really direct and interesting way is the opportunities. And, and so I was hoping you could take us through some of, from your perspective, what are the opportunities of this migration, especially if we can kind of re- reorient how we how we think about it and, and get past maybe some of the nationalist tendencies that are that are coming up in the wake of it. Yeah, I mean, I think in this case, the the comparison to um, wildlife is really interesting because in conservation circles and in wildlife biology, the the notion that wild species are moving into new places in sync with the changing climate is embraced as as a wonderful thing because that means that we have a chance of preserving biodiversity in the future as the climate changes. So in conservation circles, a conversation is about how do we facilitate these movements so that um, creatures that can no longer live in the place where they're, they're stuck are, are not stuck in those places and it can actually move into new places if they're able to do that. Um, can we create corridors? Can we connect parks? Can we uh, you know, build bridges over highways so panthers can walk over them, things like that, um, which is really exciting. And I think when we're looking at human migration, um, you know, I think the way one way we could start to think about it is, well, what is the option? Right. So if we're not l allowing people to move into new places where they can find, you know, habitable spaces to live in, then do we want them to be trapped where they are as the sea as the seas rise and as their fields dry out? Um, because what happens when you trap people in places is not that they just kind of go away and adapt to those places. They'll still try to move. It'll just all happen at once and in a catastrophic way. And so that's what I saw when I was in Bahamas, you know, last year after Hurricane Dorian, which is you know a, a islands where the average altitude is three feet above sea level and they're having these massive storms these big slow moving storms that can be incredibly destructive because of climate change and warmer waters and uh you know people haven't been able to move from those places if they you know there's been there's a whole minority of people there the haitian minority in particular who um have been really marginalized and they're not able to move easily they don't have a lot of legal pathways to move and so even those people who would have liked to have moved earlier you know before the hurricane started before the hurricane seasons there's many many people there's lots of sort of pent-up demand so to speak for people who are willing to move earlier you know and who really if they had been allowed to move you can imagine that that would have contributed to the resilience of the people who are left behind because there would have been more space the little bit of higher ground there there is that is there you know could have been more fruitfully occupied instead of having all these people who really had nowhere to go when the mm -hmm. storm hit you know and what happens when they're trapped is now you know many of them died of course um and those who survived they're still trapped there, except now they're living in an even more exposed state because before at least they had sort of cement walls around them. And now they have really make makeshift sort of shanties and shacks that they're living in. People are living in overturned buses and things like that. Um, so they're even more exposed. So we're just making we're, we're really creating a crisis by not kind of opening those release valves so people can move in advance of the really catastrophic um climate events that happen. So I think if we, you know, if, if we want, if, if we find it 
cumbersome and, and troubling to have lots of people coming in unregulated flows and up to the U.S. border and knocking on the door. And then we have to sort of deal with that. And that seems really burdensome to us. I mean, on one hand, it seems to me that it's well within our capacities to manage these flows if we were willing to you know, just spend the resources and get some more immigration judges and get more asylum officers and people who can actually process these claims in a, in a reasonable fashion that doesn't seem beyond the, the capacities of the, of the U.S. government. But if we don't want to do that and we think it is troubling that people just come and knock on our door and then, you know, and process them, well, we need to just open up more legal pathways. We know that works. You know, and if and there's a lot of people, I think, who would take us up on those. I mean, you look at the number of people who are enrolled in the UNHCR's refugee program. These are people who don't even leave the places where they're stuck. They're waiting for permission to come. And there's millions and millions of them. So I think it will 39 million or something. Abraham probably knows the number offhand. So something like that, that the UNHCR has already decided, well, these people qualify as refugees. Well, here in the United States, we're letting in. 65,000 of those people mm -hmm. next year. And yeah. even that is being sort of embraced as some huge benefit, you know, just the huge act of generosity. Well, it's just a tiny drop in the bucket of what we need. And if we think about, you know, do we really want to live in a world where uh, when we, we ourselves will have these crises and when we ourselves will have to knock on someone else's door and say, look, you know, my state is on fire now or my city is underwater. Do we really want to set a precedent where the answer is, well, we're pulling up the ladders and closing the doors on, on, on you and all of your kind? You know, um, mm. I, I don't think so. I think what we want to do is sort of create a system where we all can you know, increase our resilience to the crisis that we're really all sharing. You know, the, the way the planet is settled was based on 19th century shipping. It's it's not logical. Uh, you know, if we had to resettle the planet right now, we would not put all of our major cities on rivers and on coastlines. We would do it differently. But that's, in fact, where people live. And what we know about human migration is people start in the countryside, they move to the nearest city, mm -hmm. then they jump to the next city across a international border and then they cross an ocean you know and it's this stepwise fashion um and we can use it to our advantage if we embrace migration as something that can contribute to our resilience instead of pretending it's this problem we can somehow end we'll be back with more after this message ready to take your travels to the next level alaska airlines is committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey from mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and everything in between. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Okay, well, I wanna, I wanna make sure we have some time for some audience questions that we have rolling in, so I'm gonna go to those. Um, human societies tend to be tribal and view people in other countries as others or invaders. Won't systemic re-socialization be needed to create the welcoming environment that climate change immigration will require? Can I take a stab at that? 
Yes, please. Um, I, that is a common conception. But what I found when you look into the social science research that, in fact, when different peoples collide in new places, conflict is actually the an exception. It's not the rule. In most mm -hmm. places where you have people from different places coming together, they assimilate really quickly. Um, and there's been lots of social science research around that. So xenophobia is actually an exceptional uh, response to different peoples coming together. And so it's worth really examining why we have the xenophobic responses in some situations and not others. And also embracing the fact that, well, most of the time assimilation actually does work. You know, there's been people moving around for a long time. What we know from paleogenetics is we've been moving around from the very beginning when we walked out of Africa. We didn't just stay put in Europe and North America and Asia. We kept moving around, even in ancient times, even in prehistoric times. Um, people were colliding and mixing in all kinds of complicated ways, which is, and we can see that in our DNA, right? We can see all the little bits and pieces of DNA that we've picked up from all of our travels that our ancestors have done. Um, and that all worked because we were able to mix with each other and we, you know, to such an extent that we reproduced together and had families together. And that's why all of our genes are so mixed up. You know, we don't have really well-defined genetic populations in Homo sapiens, like other species do have that. But mm -hmm. humans really, we, are, we mix and match pretty well. That's great. Uh, here's a specific one that might touch on some of Abram's reporting, but I'm sure you both have ideas about it. In Louisiana, whole communities have already gone underwater. For a few, there's been a planned migration, essentially to move the whole community inland by a certain distance. When I think about New Orleans, though, or Miami or NYC, this seems super impractical. How could we do this, and how would we ever rebuild the cultural soul those cities embody? I wish there was a great, easy uh, answer to this question, and this is what makes the task ahead of us uh, so difficult. Um, you know, one answer, uh, not, you know, not to be glib about it, but it's, a, you know, those communities that can afford to uh, resist uh, and build, you know, physical infrastructure barriers to protect them against that change will do so. And so one of the reasons why you see, you know, levees in New Orleans and may eventually see, you know, uh, an expensive seawall around New York City is because uh, those economies are more robust and the people there are wealthier than the indigenous communities, you know, on the south coast of Louisiana who have no resources uh, and where the cost of building that physical infrastructure would just be so astronomical as to cripple, you know, even communities that tried to pay for it because you get into this you know, vicious cycle of you know, the expense and the cost of the bond measures and the taxes go up. And so people leave the school districts, which collapse and you sort of you get the spiral into a community collapse, unfortunately. And so and it, it's one of the reasons why you know, what I what I mentioned earlier, you know, is that I think that we'll see sort of gravitation towards cities because the cities will be wealthier and whether they're they're, you know, New Orleans or New York City. Um, uh, that's where you'll see, you know, a bit of of, uh, you know, of that kind of consolidation. If, if I can be selfish for our Pacific Northwest audience and, and ask, um, from your perspective, I would say from the domestic perspective would be Abram, and then the global perspective would be Sonia. How might the Pacific Northwest change? What are, what are, what are the biggest changes that we should be ready to weather um, from migration over, over the near, near, near long term? 
I mean, I can jump in with what I see, you know, for the Pacific Northwest, uh, it probably won't come as a great surprise. Uh, you know, on the downside, you'll see rising temperatures and uh, more common wildfires uh, and uh, more common smoke, uh, which may be outweighed by, you know, the benefits, which is that it'll remain a pretty, um, you know, wet and, and temperate place. And as water becomes more scarce, you'll have the water resources, much of the Pacific Northwest will uh, to cope with that. Um, you know, when I looked at agriculture across, you know, some of the inland uh, Pacific Northwest into Idaho and so forth. I mean, um, the forecast is for crop yields to increase substantially uh, in a lot of places. So as you see, you know, it becoming more and more difficult to grow whatever crop, uh, you know, whether it's corn or grapes, you know, from California to, to Nebraska, uh, you're going to see that farming opportunity uh, increase and, and maybe, you know, productivity along with it increase, uh, you know, even on the, the kind of, you know, eastern slopes of, of the Pacific Northwest. Um, uh, and obviously you'll have sea level rise to contend with. And, uh, you know, the research is already showing that, uh, you know, that Seattle, especially, uh, um, but Portland too, and Vancouver, you know, our, um, our destinations have been receiving a large number of, of moving, uh, people for years already, um, many Americans, um, but, um, but not only Americans. Uh, and so, you know, some of the models that, uh, that people have actually completed that I've looked at suggest that that'll increase and the, you know, it'll be a destination region in the future. Sonia, do you have any prognostications for how how the future of the, of the Northwest might play? Oh no, I think Abram really covered it. You know, the, in every place there's this very fine grained. Um, these differences are very fine grained, and we have to look at like the details and how they affect the kind of culture that people have created in those different places. So I think about. Um, you know, some places are going to be more resilient to that kind of change in other places. I mean, think about. Uh, places like Florida and being connected to the palm tree and what happens when the palm trees don't grow in Florida anymore or what happens mm -hmm. in Minnesota when the moose are all gone and they they're somewhere else and how much of the local culture is based on um, you know the flora and fauna that are shaped by the climate I mean just like we are right but like our cultures are so uh, you know so um, influenced by uh, the ecosystems around us yeah, this might be a good time to wrap up. So we're actually about at, at, at the amount of time that we have. So Abram, Sonia, thank you so much for the great conversation. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Sonia, Abram, and Ted for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Chi Lee. The live recording was engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krisnovich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com donate. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation. Mm -hmm.